This is VOCM Open Line. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. The biggest conversation in Newfoundland and Labrador starts now. Here's VOCM Open Line host Patty Daly. Linda Swain in for Patty Daly this morning. Uh, hope he's uh, feeling better soon. Um, we had uh, quite an interesting conversation yesterday. So anything that was raised on yesterday's show and you want to weigh in, by all means, give us a call. In the meantime, lots to talk about today. Uh, and we're going to start with Bill C-63. Uh, and I'm going to start with a quote uh, that was used in the Globe and Mail. Freedom of speech does not mean freedom to commit acts of hate. According to Mohammed Hashim, a CEO of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation, in response to the long-awaited Online Harms Act, or Bill C-63, the bill will add a definition of hatred to the Criminal Code of Canada, raise the maximum punishment for four hate propaganda offences, create a new hate crime offence that would be applied to every other offence instead of just listing it as an aggravating factor during sentencing. Um, online platforms would have an overarching duty to act responsibly, make certain types of content inaccessible to protect children. Failure of platforms to comply would lead to fines of $10 million and those who persistently ignore demands to obey the new law would face penalties of up to $25 million. Radio and television, who have to comply by broadcast standards um, uh, and print media, must also adhere to laws to protect against libel and slander, including hate. So with freedom of speech comes great responsibility. No one has the freedom to spout vitriol and hate, harassment or abuse against others. That's not freedom of speech. And in the end, I think we all know the difference in that. So why has the online world been so long to adhere to the basic rules by which mainstream regulated media must comply? We here in radio and television operate under the CRTC. Under Bill C-63, the federal government would create a regulator and a digital safety ombudsperson who would adjudicate on removing hateful material online. The question is, how will it be regulated? If they're creating a regulator. How will this be regulated? Will it be self-regulated? Will it be complaint-driven? Those are the questions that uh, I have as someone who has interest in this um, topic in a general sense. Uh, I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. By all means, do give us a call. Uh, speaking of broadcast media versus online platforms, um, you may have heard in the news this morning, Stingray, the parent company of EOCM, is joining with other independent broadcasters and in calling on government intervention to help the radio industry in Canada. Uh, we recently saw mass layoffs, of course, affecting Bell Media and CBC as traditional media struggle with a loss of advertising uh, to digital platforms. In addition to that, legislation introduced by the federal government to protect the content of news organizations has had the reverse effect with Facebook blocking all Canadian news content and news organizations from its platform. Uh, that, of course, has made it uh, more difficult uh, for people to share content 
and for smaller organizations to tease their upcoming programming or editions. We recently saw, of course, with the uh, Rec House Press, we were speaking with Renee Roy. Uh, that's the award-winning uh, newspaper based in Port Bass that had to fold recently, moving to an online presence from a regular weekly paper. So some people might say, okay, online is the way to go. But consumers, of course, are reluctant to pay for online content. In commercial radio, access is free. You're, you're listening to us now, and it's absolutely free. If you happen to have a radio or a, uh, some form of listening device, uh, you will uh, get us, and we're not asking anything from you. Our revenue is generated, of course, by advertisers who want their product or services highlighted to listeners. And whether it be while people are driving in their vehicles or at work or at home. Uh, radio is that way to get at people in a kind of an immediate way. And we know that radio works. We see examples of it every single day. But many advertisers are moving their money to digital platforms, not all of which, of course, are local. And you may say, so what? But imagine a day when you're unable to listen to local voices telling their stories or keep local law and decision makers accountable for policies that affect you. Open Line, for instance, it's been a, a, a um, stalwart, it's been a tradition uh, here in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a bit of an anomaly across many parts of Canada. There's all kinds of uh, talk shows, but um, this one is uh, special, if I do say so myself, um, having listened to it for many, many, many years. Um, just imagine now if you didn't have that opportunity to uh, have your voice heard. It's a, it's a difficult and challenging time, particularly given global events when democratic vigilance is so important. We're seeing it all around us. And I'm just raising this as a general topic. Uh, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. The Registered Nurses Union hosting a rally today at Confederation Building about the over-reliance on travel nurses. We heard from RNU President Yvette Coffey yesterday of course, and while much of what the Globe and Mail reported a week or more ago are issues that have been raised repeatedly by the Nurses Union and others, now we have a much better idea of the numbers involved. That's $35 million over five months spent. Where it went, and in some cases, uh, for what? And in some cases, we don't know where some of that money went. Well, the, the health minister says he's very concerned with the amount of money spent, but he stopped short yesterday when it comes to calling in the AG to examine what happened. Instead, he's calling in the Comptroller General to do an internal investigation, and he's offered assurances that those findings will be made public. Uh, if you have thoughts on that, you're welcome to give us a call. What do you think about the money spent on uh, agency nurses? Nobody's saying uh, that they're not needed in, um, in certain areas, and nobody's saying they don't do a good job. What we're saying is that it's creating... Uh, perhaps a bigger problem than it's solving. And I'd like to hear what you have to say about that. The independent MHA for the Bay of Islands is calling on the Premier to get involved in the controversy surrounding redfish quotas in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. You heard Eddie Joyce on VLCM Open Line yesterday saying harvesters and plant workers on the West Coast were shocked and blindsided when the federal minister announced that most of the quota was being allocated to the offshore fleet based in Nova Scotia. Joyce says the Premier intervened on behalf of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador when it came to the carbon 
contacts, and he'd like to see similar advocacy on behalf of the West Coast fishing industry. Well, if the Premier's listening, I'd like to hear what he has to say about that as well. We're going to start the show this morning by going uh, to the lines, and we're going to speak to the mayor of Dover in beautiful Bonavista Bay, Tony Keats. Hello, Tony. Good morning, Linda. How are you? Great. How are you? I am wonderful, actually. That's good. What brings yeah, no, you to us? I'm, I'm just calling in this morning to um, to let everyone know that I will be seeking the Liberal nomination for the District of Fogo Island, Cape Frills. So you have some uh, pretty heavy competition there for the nomination already. Yeah, it's looking pretty healthy this way for uh, for running for uh, for the Liberal Party. So uh, you know, uh, it shows great interest. Uh, you know, we I think we all come on the same page as you know, working for our our residents and working for our communities. Uh, there, you know, the other uh, the other couple uh, um, people that already came out are are you know in the same line as as I am. Uh, it's just one thing. I, I you know I come to this with uh, great experience. As you know, I've been I've been the mayor now of this community for over uh, 31 years plus, uh, president of MNL, and I've been on the national board of FCM. Um, to say I know the issues, it's uh, it's an understatement. So uh, so you know, with all the interest, uh, people reaching out to me, I think uh, right now, uh, along with my family support. Uh, my friend's support and my community support, I think now is the time for me to put my hat in the ring. What made you decide to do it? Timing, I think, to be honest with you. You know, um, it, it, it's now. Uh, I'm 57 years old. I, uh, I'm to the point now in my life where, you know, um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this. I, I want this. Uh, I want to work not only for my community. I'm, I'm used to working for other communities when I was president of MNL. Um, so, you know, I want to, I want to uh, reach out into, into the other communities within the district and, uh, and give them the support and, uh, and work for those. Uh, just, to, you know, just the same way I work for my community to be honest with you and um, what do you think you can bring to the the table here what can you think do you think you can bring to the to the district well, like I said, you know, I, I, my experience uh, speaks for itself, Linda. I've, uh, you know, I, I've, I've been around the uh, the many tables now of provincial and federal uh, governments uh, to know how things work. Uh, you know, I'm a goal getter. I, I get things done. Uh, that's that's who I am. Uh, you know, the, one of the hardest things I, I, I think that a lot of people got to deal with is is you know saying what what they are or or you know what they bring to a table or what they what they uh, see themselves as. And uh, you know, I. I've, I get lots of people coming to me and, and, and speaking, you know, what, what I've done in the past. Uh, you know, I, I just uh, won the, the, uh, the World Mayor Community Award uh, and, and the nominations, uh, the, uh, the overall support for that was, you know, phenomenal. And uh, it just makes, you know, it gives me a, a sense of pride. And, and what I've been doing was, uh, was, uh, was good for, uh, for my community and for the communities of our province in Canada. You have some big shoes to fill if you uh, if you win the nod. Uh, you know, Linda. You, you know, I think we all look at that. We, you know, it's very emotional when we talk about Derek. Uh, Derek was a good friend. Uh, he was somebody who who loved the district, who loved the people. Uh, his shoes would never be filled. Uh, you know, Derek was somebody who everybody loved. Uh, and I got you know, and and I know the other the other candidates uh, will never fill Derek's shoes. Uh, but we will make sure that we uphold, uh, you know, what he stood for, and that is to uh, to love up the district and the love of the people. 
Tony Keats, uh, I appreciate your call this morning. Thanks very much. No problem, Linda. You have a great day. All right. You too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that's a three-way race for the Liberal nomination now in the district of Fogo, Cape Friels. Uh, Mike Tiller of New West Valley, Dana Blackmore, former EA of uh, Derek Bragg, and now Tony Keats, mayor of Dover. When we come back after the break, we're going to speak with the president and CEO of IOC, Mike McCann, about uh, a new initiative they're taking to reduce uh, carbon emissions coming up right after this. And we're back on VOCM Open Line. We're going to start the show. Not the start the show. I'm sorry. We've already started the show. We're going to go now to our next caller in the lineup, uh, CEO of IOC Canada, Mike McCann. Hello. Hello, and good morning, Linda, and thank good, you for having me. Good I'm, morning, uh, and welcome. Call- yeah, I'm calling in actually from uh, a beautiful, sunny Lab West morning here on day two of the Future of the Lab West Summit. Beautiful. And, uh, you know, Labrador is the place to be in the winter. They just have such fabulous winters. It, it is fantastic. And, uh, you know, in a couple of days, Kane's Quest actually starts off uh, from uh, site here, and uh, IOC is a proud sponsor of that race event. Will you get a chance to take it in? Uh, I'm, I'm unfortunately going to have to head out of town, but uh, we do have a, a number of, uh, of our uh, employees actually participating in it, so pretty exciting to see. Oh, that is exciting for sure. Now, another exciting uh, uh, announcement was made yesterday, and that regard, that's regarding the decarbonization of operations there in Labrador West. What, what's the plan? What are you doing? Well, I'll tell you what, um, yesterday was a fantastic event. Uh, on the opening day of the uh, Future of Lab West Summit, uh, we had the honour of having uh, MP Yvonne Jones, as well as uh, Premier Andrew Fury, to announce uh, an important decarbonization project that uh, IOC is taking on. And this is uh, a project where um, the outcome will be actually reducing our emissions by 9%. Uh, here in Lab West, which is really exciting. And, and for the listeners, just to, to put in context what, what that really means, that's equivalent to taking about 18,000 gas vehicles off the road each year. So uh, Yvonne uh, announced uh, a, um, an $18 million investment in uh, decarbonization of our, uh, boiler, our boiler systems here at IOC, and it's coming out of the Carbon Economy Fund. So what kind of work will be involved there? If the federal government is providing $18 million, I'm assuming that you're putting your, some of your own money on the line here as well. Uh, what will it involve? Well, actually, it's a $50 million project, um, and the investment's going to go towards installing a 40-megawatt electric boiler, and this is to partially displace our heavy fuel oil bo- boilers. Um, so actually, we're electrifying, electrifying part of our, our steam boiler systems, and reducing our carbon footprint as we do that. And will that result in added costs to the company? How will that compare to what you're doing now? Well, we look at it uh, from two fronts. Um, It uh, it will reduce a bit of our costs, um, but more so it's really setting ourselves up at IOC uh, in terms of reducing our carbon footprint so that we can produce uh, some of the highest quality pellets uh, and product uh, into the steel industry and also uh, utilizing uh, our high-grade pellets to reduce the carbon footprint of the steel industry. So we're reducing at home our carbon footprint and making products actually reduce the carbon footprint of the steel industry. So what's the scope of the work here? Will will you have to hire on more people to do this, to make the change? How long will it take? Yeah, it's it's actually in effect uh, now. Uh, Foundations have been going in 
Um, in the uh, construction phase, we're about 150 uh, contractors on site. Uh, we'll have that wrapped up near the end of the year and two new permanent uh, roles within uh, our organization to, to operate it. So what will the people in Lab West notice? I guess they'll, they won't see those smokestacks anymore. Is that correct? <laughs> I don't know if they're going to notice too much more, but, uh, you know, you look at 9% uh, of our emissions, uh, that, and we emit about a million tons a year. So we're on a journey here at IOC in terms of uh, progressively reducing our carbon emissions and being a, uh, a sustainable operation within the global footprint of uh, reducing uh, uh, carbon dioxide to the environment. And uh, we're pretty excited about that. And uh, we're really excited about uh, being a community member here uh, within LabQuest and, and working with, uh, in partnership with the community around uh, just not environmental issues uh, like uh, global climate change, but also employment and, and working uh, with the community in terms of uh, ensuring that uh, we're part of the social fabric here. And, of course, uh, mining is uh, being uh, looked towards now as a, a major player when it comes to further decarbonization because we're going to need to mine a lot of those um, uh, rare elements and, and, and the like to, uh, to get more EVs on the road, ostensibly. So what kind of a role is IOC playing, I suppose, in um, you know, that, that broader scale uh, uh, of meeting the need and the desire out there? Well, that's an interesting question. And you look at the steel industry, and the steel industry uh, globally emits about 8% of all total um, carbon dioxide emissions uh, through their process. They use a lot of coal uh, in the process. We're very fortunate here uh, in Lab West. Uh, our ore reserves are very high purity um, uh, and high grade. What we're able to make is a product called direct reduction pellets, which uh, go into steel making where you reduce or eliminate the utilization of coal. Um, if you go even further with our products and as the steel industry matures into utilizing um, hydrogen, you can actually get to a net zero carbon steel. So how IOC can play a role is not only decarbonizing itself, but actually really contributing to the decarbonization of the steel industry. And when you look out to uh, 2050, as we go through this energy transition, the demand for steel can be up to 40% higher than it is today. And how do we get a, a low-carbon steel into that green economy is critical, and we're really well-placed here in Lab West to be a significant contributor to that. When do you expect this particular project to uh, be concluded? We're, we're looking at uh, the end of this year, commissioning into next year. Uh, so we'll, we'll start having our results in 2025. Mike McCann, so sorry you couldn't make uh, the beginning of uh, Kane's Quest, but uh, glad that you're in the province for this important um, announcement and, um, and the focus on Labrador West, which is a real economic engine in this province. So really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Linda. And I just want to say that we're so pleased to be part of the community and the conversation that's going on with this summit. And it's a great forum to do that. And uh, one last piece, you know, it's a really big year for IOC. Um, we've been part of this community in this region for a very long time. And in fact, this year marks our 70th anniversary. And uh, we're so excited to be part of it and looking for the next seven years. 70 years, imagine. Yeah, it's it, not many mining companies across Canada that can say they've been operating for 70 years, and uh, we're so fortunate to be part of this community 
And uh, again, how do we set ourselves up as we go through this uh, green transition and be, uh, be prosperous for the next 70 years? Mike McCann, really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. All righty. Bye-bye. Um, your thoughts on that? Uh, give us a call. We're going to go now to uh, Dave Callahan. Hello, Dave. Good morning. How are you this morning, Linda? I'm good. How are you? I'm not bad at all, as usual, and enjoying your show and sitting back and reading the news early in the morning and seeing all kinds of interesting things. Uh, there's quite a few topics that I could choose this morning, but one that I guess I most often follow and and talk about is the delivery of our health care in our province. And I see something very interesting this morning, and I, I find it most honorable uh, by Minister Tom Osborne, who is, I'm in my book, a very good fellow. And he is trying to, I guess, responsibly and openly look at the issue of travel nurses and not nobody needs to question the worth of them, but I guess they're questioning the cost of travel nurses that are, I guess, I, I don't know how many other hospitals, but I know certainly our hospital here in Stephenville have had quite a few of them. I was in the hospital recently myself, and I'd say probably half of uh, the nurses that attended to me, and by the way, very well, um, exceptional care, um, they were travel nurses. And the local nurses that we have that have chosen to stay here to support us in a permanent fashion in the delivery of our health care, um, I guess we're feeling somewhat slighted, as I do believe they should, because they're doing the exact same job, standing next to somebody who's making a lot more money, being provided to a public health care system by a private company. My question is, of course, now, first of all, nobody needs to wonder, do we need these travel nurses? Are they necessary? Yes, they are at this point in time. Looking aside from the cost, which seems to be exorbitant and uh, probably a little more than you would expect, then these nurses have to be in the hospital to keep operating rooms open, emergency rooms, you know, chronic care in the hospitals and all the valuable jobs that nurses do. I think the issue here, though, uh, Dave, as you are probably very well aware, is that this $35 million paid over a five-month period went to one single company. Exactly. For not just the nurses, but all the wraparound services that it was providing. Yeah. It's absolutely astonishing uh, that you can't imagine like i mean why is this able to be done never mind we'll set the cost aside for a second obviously there's something related to that if a private company is able to come up with so many nurses and then charge them back to the province at huge huge monies i i got a question who do we have in our Department of Health, from St. Eastern Health, the department itself, each individual health organization in each region, why can't they do this job when a private company can? And I mean in terms of keeping our established nurses here uh, 
happy, well compensated, and in a job situation where they do have enough uh, in terms of support, and there are enough nurses in the system that they can balance a bit of work and family life, because that's kind of one of the things that led up to the need and the push for travel nurses. I mean, it, it got to the point where opportunities elsewhere were far better, so our nurses left. We haven't been able to retain a lot of them that we've been graduating, this kind of thing. Well, there's a reason for that. If it is just money, I think that can be solved. Basically, not at any expense, not at any cost, but maybe if we trim the fat somewhere else within the administration of this huge monster that we call healthcare, we can afford to pay more for frontline that people elsewhere are paying. It's not rocket science, supply and demand. And what happens in this case is that if it's more attractive, and I know several Newfoundlanders who are travel nurses, that they pass the other travel nurses in the airports. They're on their way to B.C. from Newfoundland. Then then you get the crowd coming from over on the western side of Canada, coming this way. They're, they're walking past each other in the airports. And i got to tell you, that only benefits, as you've alluded to, one situation, probably one company, then I'd say when you look to see what's wrong with it, chase the money. And, of course, uh, travel nurses often, uh, they'll say that, you know, travel nurses are essential because uh, you have people who are not willing to uh, live in more isolated or remote areas where health care is still desperately needed. So you have travel nurses who might be willing to go in for three or six months or whatever the case may be, uh, make their money and go on again. Uh, but they're not getting the benefits uh, that a nurse uh, who is uh, hired locally would get. They're not getting the health benefits. They're not getting the time. I'm, you know, in lieu and all those different things, vacation time and uh, all that sort of stuff. They sort of make their own hours, but they're not getting um, those benefits. Uh, what they're getting in, in exchange is a very high salary. Um, and I would imagine that being a travel nurse is not easy because you're doing a lot of traveling. Yep. Certainly is, and I mean those extra travel nurses coming here have extra expenses that, for most part, they're not made responsible to have to pay for. I suppose so. It only adds to the additional cost of one nursing unit, every one of them. Now, very simple to just offer up complaints without probably having something in terms of a bit of a solve or something to add to this. And I don't like to do that. So what I'll add to this is something very, very simple. If it comes down to we're not able to recruit these nurses because elsewhere people are paying more for nurses and it makes it more attractive, like in any profession, uh, to, to advance your own lot in life, you go there. If they had the same options for the money, if there was very close to, you know, uh, uh, shall we say that the playing fields weren't so grossly off, they wouldn't leave their home province. And I mean, we have lots of nurses that are graduating here on a regular basis that are Newfoundlanders, and they're not all seeking sandy beaches. So we should be pushing towards responsible recruitment and retention. I can assure you, I'll give you one example that has to do with Western Health. I myself avail of the services of, of well, the only nurse practitioner that we have um, for wound care 
in Western Health, we only have one wound care specialist for all inpatient and outpatient for the entire region that Western Health serves. That service is always operating in deficit of time and capacity, always. Of course it would be. Yes. Just imagine. Two local Newfoundlanders, one that was serving the job, okay, very well, practicing for heightened skills and everything, had been treating us, treating me and, uh, and others in this region. She basically, there was a lady who she had been replacing, so the position was basically, she was filling the position as a temp or whatever, but the permanent position belonged to a very fine lady from Cornerbrook. The other lady was from uh, the Northern Peninsula, and she wanted to stay on in that role. She didn't want to give it up, but when one lady returns, they just automatically knocked her out of that role. She could have increased the capacity in this area of healthcare by a hundred percent. Now she's still working in the system somewhere, I would imagine, but she was one hundred percent perfect for the job here in Newfoundland, not wanting to move away. Homes built, and Western Health refused to extend and accept her and keep her on to have the lady that was returning, who we were glad to have come back. And the one that had been currently filling the role, whose skills had become very, very fine and very good and was serving the job very well. But they chose to not do it. I wrote a letter to the Minister of Health. I wrote a letter to our Premier. And I asked him, I said, you know, in many other areas, I mean, just with the addition of one person, you could hardly double your capacity in that role. But here's an opportunity. They did what they should, I guess, the Premier's office and Minister Osborne forwarded off the suggestion to Western Health, and it died. They could have doubled the capacity, cut the waiting times, not be burning out the current nurses and professionals that they have with some extra capacity, with a Newfoundlander who was in their system and in their back pocket. One of the things that happens that I don't see both oars hitting the water with the way they treat our health care. I'll give you an example. There are two surgeons that are slated to come to Stephen Mill Hospital imminently, almost right now. But we do not have an anesthesiologist. Well, I would say that whoever's responsible for providing that position through Western Health or Eastern Health so that we can avail of those two surgeons here in Stephenville in our hospital, because I'll tell you what's going to happen. They're going to come here, but they're going to be handed off to Corner Brook, where as surgeons, like the other surgeons in Corner Brook, they're going to have to apply for surgery room times for scheduling. They're going to have to be put on a waiting list to perform uh, such scheduled surgeries while people wait and while two operating rooms will sit dormant in Stephenville. These are the things that are going on. Both oars are not hitting the water in terms of retention, first, recruitment, second, and a common-sense approach to filling these jobs, because I can assure you that having known from being within the system myself, I can almost write the book on the quality of care that we receive from our nurses, and it's second to none. There's just not enough of them. Dave Callahan, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Take care. Bye-bye. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. You're listening to VOCM Open Line. 
And we're back, Linda Swain, sitting in for uh, Patty Daly. And you heard me mention off the top of the show that uh, independent broadcasters across Canada, including Stingray, the parent company of VOCM, uh, are joining together to call on government intervention to help Canada's radio industry. And that may sound self-serving on uh, my part, but I think it uh, speaks to a much larger issue and concern, and it's part of a conversation being had right across Canada right now. We're going to go now to... The Senior Vice President of Brands and Content with Stingray Radio, Steve Jones. He joins me now. Hello, Steve. Hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm I'm well. Thanks for having me on. How are things? Great. So, uh, yeah, I saw this uh, release and, uh, you know, I know we're part of the Stingray group. So some people may say, well, you know, what are you talking about here? But it speaks to a much bigger issue, I believe. And uh, that is the difficulty that many of the traditional broadcasters, both radio, television and print media, for that matter, are facing in this digital age. I think you're 100% right. And we're really not looking here for the government to come to the table and fund our industry or give us handouts. Um, This really is a question of of common sense and asking the government of Canada to take very simple, very low friction, easy to implement steps that would incentivize advertisers in this country to invest in Canadian media over American and foreign media, including the biggest advertiser or very close to it, the government of Canada itself. And the government of Canada does not spend much of its marketing money on Canadian radio, TV, print, or even Canadian-owned digital outlets. They're spending it on Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk and and on um, big American platforms like Google and YouTube and, and bypassing the very media that is the lifeblood of Canadian uh, communities, large and small, all across the country. And yet, uh, if they want to get their messages out, they're very quick to uh, call on uh, local traditional media to get that message out. Yeah, they are. And they know full well that local traditional media, as much maligned as it might be in the rumor mill, is still the number one source of entertainment and information for Canadians, far and beyond all other sources, radio, TV, print, and digital, Canadian-owned, continue to be incredibly powerful voices. And, and it wasn't long ago when the Canadian radio industry specifically was nationally worth about $1.6 billion in annual advertising. That is coming close to being cut in half. It's, it's dipping below a billion dollars a year. And that's primarily because of advertisers moving their money to, to digital platforms. And most of those platforms as we've covered, are owned by large American and multinational corporations. So what we're asking is really two very, very simple, very easy to execute things that would not require a lot of legislative red tape or not add a significant amount of burden to the monitoring process, is to say to Canadian businesses, we would like to offer you a tax incentive when you spend advertising money on Canadian radio, TV, print, and Canadian-owned digital outlets. Invest your money in Canada and you get a tax break for it. That tax break doesn't go to us. That's to them. We want to incentivize behavior that reinforces the the landscape of Canadian media that helps our country thrive. And then secondarily, we'd like the government of Canada itself to commit to investing 70% of their annual marketing money in Canadian media. And that, to me, just doesn't seem like a big ask. I mean, the government has a long history of incentivizing behavior to help the country, to help us thrive and succeed, and uh, asking them to spend 70% of their marketing money on the very media that helps those communities grow seems like a very easy ask. Have you received much of a, a response to date? 
Yeah, so far, reaction has been really, really supportive. I, I think everyone is kind of, uh, as I said, common sense. I think people look at this and go, that makes sense. Once you realize that it's not broadcasters asking for the government to create a fund to, to you know, hand out money to us to support us, we're not looking for that. What we're really looking for here is just incentivization of positive behavior and looking for the government to reflect the very own values that it, it says it has when it asks Canadian media to do certain things, right? It makes me think of uh, CanCon, uh, you know what I mean? Because we're, we have to adhere uh, under CRTC regulations to CanCon, Canadian content on the radio. Uh, so, I mean, it made stars, uh, you know, arguably, of, of uh, bands like Rush, you know, and Streethearts yeah. and all of these things, you know, uh, that uh, oh, yeah. are... The, the, the Canadian music industry has a wonderful star system in large part because of that kind of incentivization and regulation. We're, we're obliged to play 35% minimum Canadian content at all of our radio stations, some of them higher. And we live up to that expectation and obligation because it supports the growth of our Oops. Same kind of common sense on both sides. We lost you there for a second, Steve. Sorry, there's some kind oh, of a digital um, interruption there. But, uh, yeah, I think I take your point there. You know, so it, it follows along those kinds of lines, I would imagine. And how important is it uh, for those local voices and content to be heard? It's incredibly important. Our company, while we're large and have 100 radio stations, we serve communities as big as Toronto and Vancouver, but we serve small communities all over Newfoundland and Labrador, all over Atlantic Canada, rural Alberta, and parts of the country where there are no other electronic media. And we live up to um, a lot of obligation to serve those communities as best we can. That used to be a lot easier when money was flowing more freely into Canadian advertising. But in 2024 and going forward, it is getting increasingly difficult. And we're seeing that with companies like Bell selling off 48 radio stations in smaller communities. We're seeing it where certain companies have shut down AM radio stations that are underperforming. We don't want to see that happen in our industry. We don't think that needs to happen in our industry. And we think with a little common sense cooperation from the government, we can find a path that doesn't cost taxpayers a single dime and does nothing but support our industry into the future. So, um, you know, where do, else does your advocacy go? Will there be trips to Ottawa? Well, we'll see where the path takes us. And right now, as, as an individual, um, anyone can reach out to their MP and voice their support for this kind of uh, this ki- this kind of process it would mean a lot for anyone to to reach out by email or phone or on social media to their mp and let them know that they want to support canadian radio tv print and digital journalism and we're talking about digital too we're really not talking about legacy media like radio and print and tv we're talking about supporting canadian media in all its forms and all its platforms and Anything that any individual can do to, to, to voice their support for that is helpful. We'll see if, if there's an opportunity to go to Ottawa. We really hope that the best outcome here is knowing that the government's in the budget process, is to have them build this into their budget and just take this very simple step that would require very little in terms of legislation and just make this happen. Steve Jones, I do appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you, Linda. Have a great day. You too. Uh, Steve Jones is the uh, Senior Vice President of Brands and Content with Stingray Radio. That's the parent company, of course, of uh, VOCM. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you.
And we are back. We're going now to Des Sullivan, uh, one of the friends of Cabot Martin. Hello, Des. Hi, uh, Diane. Uh, nice to uh, be with you this morning. Linda Swain, uh, I know you talk to Diane all the time. <laughs> You're right, Linda. I, I apologize. Well, I uh, listen, it's okay. If anyone refer- refers to me as Diane, I see that as a great compliment. <laughs> well, look, uh, I'm, I have a good new- uh, another good news story, then, in that case, uh, this morning. I'm going to, to build on uh, Steve Jones' uh, story, who... Uh, which was which was which is a really important one uh, the importance of professional journalism and uh, the broader government uh, and economic support for professional journalism uh, I'm going to talk very briefly if I might if I might about uh, independent public policy and evidence-based public policy and uh, uh, I'm going to talk specifically about Kevin Martin um, uh, gentleman who uh, has been on your show, I guess, over the years, many, many times, and uh, uh, was a passionate uh, participant in dis- public policy discussions, whether in relationship to Muskrat Falls or, but more particularly, uh, offshore oil and gas, uh, the fishery, uh, and and other areas of public policy. And uh, you uh, may recall Cabot uh, passed away untimely in late uh, 22 and uh, uh, some friends of his in, including myself and uh, David Verdi and uh, old Doug Moores and uh, a bunch of others uh, like uh, Diana Baird and Rob Strong and Fonz Fagan uh, Ray Andrews uh, got together and said look you know this is a guy who has made an enormous contribution to the province in, uh, in the area of public policy we have to make sure that his legacy is recognized and, and, and lives on. So that's really what I'd like to take two minutes of your time to talk about this morning uh, from uh, and, and, and give you a couple of perspectives, if, if I might. Uh, one, uh, one thing I would say is that we started this uh, initiative uh, looking for funds to create uh, an award at Memorial University for the purpose of uh, research, uh, funding research in public policy with a goal of raising 100 grand. And uh, I'd uh, like to tell you this morning that we have actually reached $200,000. Oh, that's amazing. So obviously there's a lot of interest. There, there was a lot of interest. We, we're, needless to say, very, very pleased. Uh, the, the original goal was to provide a, uh, uh, a grant to, uh, to, re- to research uh, students uh, of uh, around the $20,000 mark for, uh, for uh, five years. Uh, this will go uh, to $20,000 a year for 10 years. Uh, it'll actually net out to the to the researcher, the successful applicant uh, at around 18 after administration fees. Uh, but um, you know, it's it's in a range where it's the, the number is very meaningful, uh, can be built onto existing uh, or other sources of funding that the groups of uh, researchers uh, or individuals will uh, can act 
access and you know who, who may be in into larger projects uh, and so forth but on whether on a small scale or a larger scale research project uh, this now uh, is a very meaningful contribution to that effort and uh, yeah we we're very pleased that uh, we've uh, reached the two hundred thousand dollar milestone and uh, I guess one of one of my functions this morning is to say to you uh, that uh, uh, we wouldn't like to see this end just because we've doubled the milestone uh, there's still plenty of opportunity for uh, people to um, uh, to contribute to public policy uh, analysis in the province uh, you know you spent the morning uh, talking about uh, health care about uh, uh, journalism uh, about uh, environmental issues well uh, all of these things arrive out of good well-researched uh, independently arrived at public policy uh, it influences government it influences institutions uh, it influences the, the public generally in their thinking about how uh, how we spend our collective dollars on services and programs and on how we relate to each other in terms of government and uh, so you know funding funding public policy research is something that doesn't always get uh, as much discussion is not a is not the sexiest uh, subject in the world but it's probably one of the most important well, and you, uh, I mean, uh, Cabot Martin's legacy lay, as you already pointed out, in uh, oil and gas and uh, the fishery here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Will this award be handed out in any particular uh, sector or area of um, uh, focus? Actually, uh, it, it will have a very broad focus. Uh, the, the intent is that it will uh, be available uh, for applicants in, uh, and I should say, first of all, uh, the award program will be managed by the Harris Center at Memorial University, uh, which is, has a, a very long history now of participating in the research work in the province. And in that regard, specifically the Kevin Martin Award will uh, will will uh, accept applications in the area of whether social or economic research. Uh, naturally, uh, Cabot's own bent was in uh, fisheries, agriculture, offshore oil and gas. Uh, but uh, you know you can't. But uh, well, and in that in that context, uh, governance. Uh, was a was an important feature of what he was all about. So, uh, so there is the social and economic side, but there's also the governance side of public policy uh, that uh, that will be important in 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 this entire initiative. And we often talk about speaking truth to power, and we had uh, plenty of opportunity to do that during the Muskrat Falls saga. And 
and the cabinet was a, an important participant in that. Uh, but uh, you can see that uh, those are areas which need a lot of stimulation, need a lot of encouragement. Uh, re good research uh, is something that is uh, uh, that must be uh, funded. Uh, it must be fostered, and uh, it takes uh, groups uh, like this, perhaps, to participate and get people to unleash their pocketbooks and, and contribute. And this is certainly, uh, I think, a very, very important endeavor. Des Sullivan, I'm really pleased that you were able to call us this morning. I thank you very much for your time. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'll just finish off by saying, uh, uh, if, I, if I might, Linda, that uh, I won't call you uh, Diane. I'll call you properly Linda now. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> but uh, if, uh, if uh, people, in the, people throughout the province uh, who know Cabot Martin, who know all about him, want to, uh, want to acknowledge his important contribution over 50 years, uh, they can still contribute. Uh, by just uh, Googling uh, the Kevin Martin Award from Royal University, and uh, they'll come up with a website uh, where they can do directly their contribution online, or they can just send a check off to Memorial University, uh, P.O. Box 4200, and uh, make sure that it's identified as a contribution to the Kevin Martin Award. And I think that, uh, you know, this will, um, uh, this is a really, really good news story and uh, we hope that it continues to grow. And, and thanks for your time. A wonderful legacy of a very extraordinary Newfoundlander. Uh, Des Sullivan, thank you. Thank you. Nice to talk to you. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, just before the news break, we're going to go now to uh, Bill, who has a snow-clearing issue. What's up, Bill? Oh, good morning, Linda. How are you? Good. Great. I, um, I live here in the West End off the Ruby Line. Yeah. And and yesterday, thank God, my daughter had a jeep. I had a, a medical appointment at the Bay Bulls Medic Clinic. It took us over one hour to drive up to it. <clears throat> Never laid an eye on a plow anywhere. And when we came out of the clinic at 6 o'clock that night, we met two city plows coming out of St. John's, which I thought, kind of late, isn't it, to plow the road now? Uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, yesterday's snowfall, I think, took a lot of people by surprise, but it became clear, uh, you know, early in the afternoon that it wasn't letting up, you know, and that right. snowfall was pretty extraordinary. I mean, I was oh. on Ken Mount Road last night, and it was not good driving. You know what? I fully understand what you went through. But to me, whoever's in charge of dispatching the saw trucks and plow trucks should have had a handle on it. Not wait till 6 o'clock at night when we met the traffic coming back to the Ruby Line, bumper to bumper going to say Bay Bulls or Trapassi and they had no nothing plowing ahead of them. And the evening commute as well when everybody's on the road. Exactly, exactly. So I just thought I'd voice my two cents and I appreciate your time. Bill, thank you for raising that. I'd like to hear what others have to say. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye.
Yeah, what did you think of the snow clearing uh, yesterday during that, uh, I guess, uh, unexpected amount of snowfall that we received? I'd like to hear what you have to say. Uh, we're up to news time now with Brian Medor. You're listening to VOCM Open Line. And we are back. We're going to go now to the Secretary Treasurer of the FFAW, Jason Spingle. Hello, Jason. Good morning, uh, Linda. How are you this morning? Pretty good. Lots of snow here. I was out of town for a couple of weeks and uh, came back to... uh the reports were true. There's certainly quite a bit of snow around. But anyway, used to that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, so, Jason, you uh, were part of a uh, demonstration recently on the West Coast. And yesterday we heard from him, uh, independent MHA Eddie Joyce, who's calling on the premier to intervene when it comes to this uh, redfish uh, allocation. Well, we're certainly uh, pleased to to hear more uh, of our politicians speaking out. I think as they look at this issue, uh, Linda, they see, uh, you know, Mr. Joyce represents the Bay of Islands there, and he's certainly uh, looking at this and seeing what a, a significant opportunity this would be or hopefully will be for his uh, for his area, the people in his area directly, with the plant there in Benoit's Cove, for example, that would be able to buy and process uh, this resource. Uh, so we're very, uh, very, very happy uh, that more uh, pleased to see more politicians coming out as they should be. And, you know, we know the premier is fully aware of this. Uh, Jerry Byrne as well has spoken out uh, very, very strong. And we appreciate that um, on this issue. So, you know, we, we're going to need everyone pulling together here because, you know, what we need is the right decision made here. And uh, so there was a decision made uh, that certainly wasn't very favorable for for the uh, owner-operators, the people directly independent, the harvestered with boats, the plants, um, you know, that are throughout the Gulf, within the Gulf here, because that's what we're talking about, the resource within the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Uh, but the minister did say that it was a minimum quota of 25,000 tons. She can allocate more, and that's what we need. We need... Uh, we need her to make a decision. We have a redfish advisory in Halifax next week. That's going to be a big meeting. We'll certainly be there with our representatives. And we're uh, our scientist, Dr. Aaron Carruthers, is going as well to present some of the work we've done. And we need uh, a decision shortly after that meeting that's going to grant a significant amount of quota to the owner-operators, in uh, certainly on the West Coast, Northern Peninsula, uh, and in Quebec and New Brunswick, that have the boats tied onto the wharf that, basically have very little to fish now because of the collapse in the shrimp resource that carried them and and their communities for for decades and now it's been decimated in large part due to the redfish uh, uh, boom so there's a lot there but uh, you know there's solutions here and we need them well, the big theme that everybody uh, discussed when uh, during the, um, around the time of the COD moratorium, of course, was the whole uh, notion of mismanagement. The federal government mismanaged the resource, and that led to the uh, the eventual collapse of what was the lifeblood of Newfoundland and Labrador for many, many decades. Um, and Jerry Byrne has raised this um, suggestion again that, you know, we're looking at the same kind of mismanagement when these uh, what seems like political decisions are made in management of a very important resource. And we're only just now seeing the reopening of the redfish fishery. And a lot of people um, have to rely on that fishery uh, for their livelihood. So, um, you know, do you agree with that concept that the way in which this is being rolled out uh, 
uh, is actually a form of a mismanagement because it creates a bigger, um, I guess, uh, desire or um, reliance on this on this resource. Certainly, would agree with what uh, Minister Byrne has outlined uh, in that context. And, you know, again, it's also the conservation aspect because, you know, we have to do this fishery differently. You know, we have uh, uh, over almost 600 harvesters on the west coast of Newfoundland alone that depend on the Atlantic halibut fishery. That's what we've been doing over the past three or four years because we know we had to do it differently is testing areas and gears and depths and all these aspects to minimize Atlantic halibut bycatch so we can have a sustainable fishery. And uh, certainly an element there, right? I just want to highlight as well that I attended a demonstration. I don't know if you, I guess uh, most people would have saw it on the news or heard tell there last week where uh, uh, I attended with five of our committee members, harvesters from uh, the Northern Peninsula uh, and, uh, you know, the four-hour fleet in uh, Gas Bay, Quebec. And we had an excellent uh, at Minister Laboutier's uh, regional office there in Grand Riviere, uh, Quebec. And, uh, you know, what I would say is driving is I've, dr- I've attended many meetings in Ramuski. It was the first time I drove around the loop uh, on the Gas Bay Peninsula and uh, kept uh, kept saying we kept saying how much it reminded us of driving the northern peninsula, for example. You know, you have a few bigger centers and then but it's mostly communities. And we we went to the ports there in uh, Fox River. Uh, and we also then, the second day, we went down and visited uh, Shippigan and Karaket, talked to harvesters there. Again, I want to repeat, and that's a point, again, you know, that uh, Minister Byrne has pointed out, is that the plants are there, the boats are there, the expertise, are, this, that's the other element, this doesn't require any major investment. You know, uh, in the context of the boats that are ready to go fishing. Now, you know, we also do need a buyback because we know that there's going to be a transition. Is we're not going to replace shrimp in the short term, and uh, but we want. You know, what we're talking about is a future for the west coast of Newfoundland, the Northern Peninsula, the Gas Bay Peninsula, and the the Karakut area, uh, Shippigan area, for example. That uh, that's so important. You know, to our I would say our eco- economics and our culture uh, in out here in the east. So, uh, you know, that decision we need we need some uh, short term investment, and we need that decision. We need that quota to be able to move forward here and we're uh, going to keep fighting until we get it so what do you suppose is at play here because i mean uh, i've heard many in the industry say they were blindsided by this uh, ffaw president uh, greg pretty called this a punch in the guts d- simply didn't see it coming uh, what do you think was behind this I, I i i honestly you know can't speculate other than to say it just seems like a totally uh You know, unjust decision. And and also, uh, you know, since that time, and I think that's another important point, um, in 1977, uh, you know, uh, Romeo LeBlanc, considered the greatest uh, minister of fisheries and a liberal cabinet minister at that time, allocated the first 30,000 tons of redfish in the Gulf of St. Lawrence, a unit one, and that's what we're basically referring to here, to the inshore owner-operators. And and he gave the offshore, what was called the offshore at the time, even though they were bringing the fish into the plants in... in, uh, in uh, Burgio and also in PEI and uh, in the Magdalen Islands, for example, they were bringing the fish in there, so it wasn't being processed on board. Um, 
you know, so that's, uh, they gave it to the inshore and then gave those other offshore companies resources in the north, which they've really built their, you know, because this definition of offshore is uh, misunderstood in, in a large context. So, you know, there's been a new offshore with factory freezers, and we don't need to invest in factory freezers to have a profitable and sustainable fishery in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. We're only talking about a few hours from shore. You know, as uh, as our chairperson, Rain Ginge, just said, is we're, we're fishing in a big river. And, you know, compared to the North Atlantic, and in all due respect, it really is. You know, uh, uh, you're not that far from the resource in any context. So, uh, like I say, we have that meeting next week in Halifax. It's going to be uh, – it's going to be uh, – well, certainly we'll be there to put all our points forward, and, you know, we're going to depend on our uh, DFO and our politicians to, to get this right here and, uh, and uh, give us an opportunity for a renewed uh, future here in west coast of Newfoundland, northern peninsula, and other parts of the Gulf. Jason Spingle, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Linda, and uh, look forward to talking to you uh, again. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. And uh, we're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to speak with you. And we're back. We're going now to uh, Brian Moore. You're on the air. Hello, Brian. Hi. Good morning, Linda. So you're stepping down. <laughs> uh, I am. Uh, I, I'd rather uh, I'd rather call it just a just a change in my uh, in my career. But uh, yes, I, I've uh, come to the decision that. Um, uh, you know, after I guess I had 99 months, Linda, uh, eight eight years and three months uh, as the uh, as a very proud member of uh, of Premier Fury's government and and uh, and a proud MHA for the district of Beaver Green Bay. Uh, there's an opportunity presented itself, uh, Linda. I really wasn't looking at this. I mean, but the opportunity presented itself a couple of weeks ago, and uh, you know, I as I said yesterday. Uh, uh, to to uh, media folks that I that I had, had an opportunity to chat with, uh, you know, for the first time in my my life, my my career that I I ever did at a resume uh, to send to uh, to uh, you know the the business who offered this opportunity to me and. Uh, uh, anyway, I got shortlisted for an interview and uh, ended up getting a letter of offer last week. Uh, so I, you know, I I was really. Uh, hesitant about uh, the opportunities that were going to become available for me to, to run in, uh, in the next uh, upcoming provincial election. I had committed to my family uh, that this would probably be my last run and uh, I talked about the three boxes that I needed to check off Linda and that were those boxes were my health and, and uh, support from my family and whether I felt I was making a contribution to the folks that I represented. And that really meant that I still enjoy my work. Linda, I love my work. I really do. Uh, I, uh, I work hard at my health. Uh, you know, most people know me. To, most people who do know me know that I'm in the gym 5 o'clock most mornings. And, uh, you know, I, I, I keep myself in, in, in good trim and uh, try to look after my health. Uh, but really, um, it, was, it was my support from my family. And, uh, you know, they've given me, uh, again, 99 months of continuous support, Linda, and it's time for me to give back. And uh, so we had an opportunity to sit down as a family, discuss this uh, this opportunity before I applied for it. 
and uh, you know I sort of got the green light uh, from the family that this is where this is the direction that uh, we need to go in. Um, you know, I have uh, 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 my wife Judy, uh, who's uh, who has been a registered nurse for over 40 years, uh, retired some time ago, and uh, our two daughters uh, uh, and their families uh, both live in Springdale, my hometown, and uh, so it's it's uh, while it's sad, it's exciting as well, Linda. And uh, you're no stranger to reinventing yourself. <laughs> no, I uh, you know I've. Um, like I said, I start. Uh, I, I set um, at the company that I've that I've uh, I will take up employment with is, is Castle Building Centers Group Limited, and they are a national buying group. And uh, you know, I had the opportunity to uh, be their business development manager, looking after the. I think they got somewhere between forty and fifty uh, locations uh, here in Newfoundland and Labrador. So uh, you know, I'm still going to have a challenge to, and uh, still got to do some travel, but it will provide me uh, with more time with my family. As you know, the life of an MHA, uh, especially for me, uh, you know, I travel uh, just about six hours from uh, from Springdale uh, to be in here uh, when the House of Assembly is is uh, is sitting. And certainly when it's not, I got a district of, uh, we're, I think we're down to 40 communities now. We've resettled some, including Little Bay Islands and Snooks Arm. Uh, but it's been a busy life. And on my weekends, Linda, there's always events to attend to. So I don't get uh, too much time to spend home with my family. And, and, and I really miss that, to be honest. Well, Brian, I, I do appreciate your time. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, I don't know if you heard um, Helen Conway Ottenheimer yesterday, but she had uh, nothing but good things to say about you yesterday. I listen, uh, Linda. I mean, I uh, I have uh, you know I've been blessed uh, with great colleagues, and on, on, uh, certainly within government uh, and my own caucus and premier, and uh, and certainly uh, members uh, across the way as well. And and it's all about respect. I mean, uh, you know, I I show respect and and uh, and I and I receive it in the, in the same manner. Uh, and that's who I am. Uh, you know, I I've been very very respectful. And uh, you know, as my as my position of, of deputy speaker, uh, Linda, you know, you uh, I you know. It's it's difficult uh, to get uh, riled up in the debate, and all of a sudden you're 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 on a government you're on the government side, and uh, you're part of the government team, and then all of a sudden I'm sitting in the speaker's chair when he uh, needs to attend to duties uh, in his office. I sit in the speaker's chair, and I have to see things nonpartisan, and it's it's a it's a very hard transition now. If if you think about what I what I got to do, maybe within one minute of getting a nod from the from the speaker, I'm in his chair, and now I. Have have to see things nonpartisan, and I think most, uh, you know, most of the folks in, in the in the House of Assembly on, on both sides uh, know that I I, I know I, I pride myself on fairness, uh, and uh, and obviously that's where I probably earn some of the respect. But uh, Linda, I, I I really I really again want to want to thank uh, you know especially my family, you know folks from my district, the Beaver Green Bay, my my colleagues in the House of Assembly, and former you know, former Premier Ball. Uh, my premier today, Premier Fury, uh, my CA, uh, Linda, if you give me just a, a, a minute, I, I just want to talk about my uh, constituent assist- assistant back in Beaver Green Bay. She's at the office in Springdale. Her name's Kathleen Hines, and she's been with me since day one. And I just want to assure the, uh, you know, the residents in my district that uh, Kathleen's going to be in the office for up to another uh, three, three plus months, uh, and she's there to take your, take you know, to discuss your issues and obviously do work uh, on behalf 
of uh, on behalf of our office. And uh, and I, I just want to uh, give a shout out to the public service as well. I, I have been blessed. I've had the opportunity to sit as Minister of Education and Early Childhood Development, as well as the, uh, the Minister of Children, Senior Social Development, uh, Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation, and, and the Minister responsible for the status of persons with disabilities. And I work with three or two uh, excellent departments. And uh, I, you know, I, I can't say enough about the public service. Uh, they are what makes this place tick. And, uh, you know, I certainly want to uh, throw a bouquet uh, to them and, and thank them for their friendships and their hard work. Brian War, all the best in your future endeavors, as they say. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Linda. And it's been a pleasure. Alrighty. Bye-bye. Uh, that's Brian War stepping down as MHA for Bayvert Green Bay. We're going to go now to Lisa Slaney on the Buren Peninsula. Hello, Lisa. Good morning, Linda. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Linda, um, I just wanted to speak a little bit about um, something that's a little bit different for me, I suppose, regarding not, not, uh, not my uh, work-related uh, topics, but uh, something as a, uh, I guess, a resident of the province. Uh, we recently moved to uh, Spanish Room from Marystown. So Spanish Room is my husband's uh, hometown. So we moved there in September. And in September, I uh, took pictures of the deplorable road conditions um, that were in Spanish Room. I think I took about, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 pictures, and I had sent them to Minister Abbott. And, you know, and I'm sure there's other stories all around the province in terms of, you know, how bad the roads and things are. But, like, there's there's literally more potholes than there is pavements in this community and, you know, a lot of elderly uh, people living there. And, I, you know, and I just thought it was horrible that, uh, you know, and... and the conditions that were there that people, you know, were dealing with and that hadn't been paved or any really road work done, like, in 31 years. So, anyway, so um, I sent uh, an email and these pictures to uh, Minister Abbott. Um, I received no reply. I uh, emailed again asking for an update, no reply. So, February the 13th, the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure uh, put out a call to the public on highway improvement projects to be considered for 2024-2025. So, um, it, was, uh, it was a little bit puzzling first, but I thought, well, it's like everything. If you don't buy a ticket, you can't win because it really felt as though it was a contest and that the government was somehow, you know, playing communities off of each other to, you know, devise for pavement for the coming year or road work for the coming year and, and future years. So I guess my question is, where are the provincial engineers, you know, that would um, make recommendations to the department with regards to, you know, road infrastructure in the province. You know, when, when the government comes out, and I appreciate the fact, you know, that that government is asking individuals for input, uh, but at the same time, it, it feels as though there's a contest happening here now, uh, you know, within Newfoundland and Labrador. So if you didn't put in, you know, a letter and send pictures, uh, you know, are you included? Um, how is this going to be evaluated? Like, is it because you're the biggest municipality? Because, you know, Spanish Room and, and Rock Harbor, we uh, we kind of came together, and as LSDs, you know, we made a submission yesterday of uh, 77 uh, letters of residents
students from both communities and probably more that I'm not aware of um, and, you know, and pitchers. So, you know, my question to the department and especially to the minister is, you know, how is this going to be evaluated? You know, who wins the coloring contest? Because you're not, you know, if, if, if your own employees, your own engineers, you know, the people who do the maintenance on these roads are supposed to do the maintenance on these roads are not recommending to you what needs to be done and you are coming and asking the public uh, for input in what gets considered, well, then you need to start being a little bit more transparent with us of how this is going to be evaluated. You know, is it the best letter? Is it, um, you know, the, the, the number of potholes? Uh, is it, you know, where you live? Is it if your MHA sits uh, on the government side? You know, how, how is this evaluated? Is because it the number of complaints you receive? Uh, you yeah. know, like you say, it, it comes down to a, a, a popularity contest almost. Yeah. Yeah, and and you are you are you know you're vetting people against each other, communities against each other because you know everybody's in need, I suppose, in in some regard. Uh, but you know, how are you evaluating this, and and where are your employees that are not there? I mean, I sat on municipal government for uh, for uh, four years, and I know from experience that you know you have X number of dollars to work with. You have engineers that are telling you you know what's what has to be done, what's, you know, what, what sections of road are, are worse and things like that. So I'm, I'm really, uh, I don't know, I'm really torn, you know, because I appreciate the fact that you're saying, you know, tell us, but shouldn't they already know this? Lisa, you're raising some excellent points here, and I'd like to hear, you know, some of the um, thoughts that went into that and, uh, you know, what they intend to do with the information received. And what if, for instance, uh, you have an LSD, for instance, that where there is a need, uh, but for whatever reason, uh, people may not feel compelled to write in or... Exactly, right? I, I followed, yesterday going home from work, I followed um, a family member of ours, and he has a, a wife who's, who's ill, and like every bump in the road is uh, life-threatening to her because the, the type of illness she has, she can't be operated on. And, it, it, you know, it's extreme pain for her to drive over this road. And, and God love her husband, I mean, he, he was driving probably 10 kilometers, and if you were behind him, you would think he was drunk. It was just, you know, the way that, that you would have to maneuver to actually try to provide a little bit of comfort to his wife going down, you know, that road. My, I mean, my heart broke for them yesterday to see, to see, you know, how he had to drive to get her home without being, you know, in, in too much pain. So, you know, and, and I'm sure there's stories all over the province. Um, you know, I'm, I'm positive there are. But, again... How are you evaluating this and, and, you know, this contest? It's what it feels like, you know, who, 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 who tells the best story, who wrote the best letter, who sent the best pictures? What is it? You know, tell us. Lisa Slaney, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. You take care and have a good day. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'd like to hear what others have to say about uh, the points she raises. Uh, excellent points. Um, by all means, uh, let's hear from you. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, uh, we're going to hear about um, uh, the case involving, um, um, oh my goodness, his first name escapes me, Snellgrove. We'll hear more about that when we come back after the break.
And we are back. We are going to go now to Jen Dion on line one. Hello, Jen. Good morning, Linda. I want to start by just addressing real quick. You indicated when we threw to the break um, to discuss that we were going to discuss the case against uh, Douglas Snellgrove. Of course, it's not a case anymore. It's a conviction. He was convicted of raping Jane Doe. So I just want to make sure that that is clear. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Where I know that, you know, um, as every woman in this province does, um, how uh, serious the journey has been for Jane Doe, who was raped by RNC officer in uniform, Douglas Snellgrove. And the reason I've called in today uh, is because um, her journey, well, it will never be over, but the legal quest for justice continues. And for the listeners, if anyone is not aware, um, it was uh, over seven years ago it came to light that an RNC officer in uniform on duty um, raped a young woman who he escorted to her home. Um, yeah. And the details of the case have been discussed extensively. There were not one, not two, but in seven years there have been three trials to uh, bring uh, the perpetrator to justice. There was finally a conviction. And last summer, he was released from prison pending outcome of an appeal to the Supreme Court. So he has been free. Uh, since last summer, despite the conviction. And this Thursday, on the last day of the month, the Supreme Court is expected to announce, uh, to render its judgment on his appeal. And as I understand it, in my limited capacity, I'm not a lawyer, but if his appeal is granted, he will be free. And if it is not, he will go back to jail. And if he is freed, there may, in fact, have to be a fourth trial. So the reason I called Linda was because this is so upsetting for everyone to think how hard it must be for one woman to find justice for something so heinous and so violent. And I know that many of your listeners feel the same way and have for many years and months now been touching away about the pain that Jane Doe must be going under. But there is one way we can be brave enough to show our support. And by showing your support for Jane Doe on social media, this was a campaign created not by me, by another supporter. And it, all it is is a black square that says hashtag support for Jane Doe. So she knows that she is not alone. 
that she knows that there are people out there who feel for her and who thank her for coming forward and being brave enough to see this through, through unimaginable amounts of effort over three trials and who knows what uh, will still be required. And I see that the profile pictures of women that I know are changing today. Everybody is starting to put their black square out there. But I wanted to call today because Open Line has such a reach to so many people in the province. And I encourage you, especially if you are a man, to consider showing your support for Jane Doe over the next couple of days on social media. Because if you do this, you're not anti-police. You are anti-violence against women. And in this small way, if the men start to show up in the same way that the women do, we're truly going to know that violence against women is wrong. And people will start to see your support and they'll start to ask about the case if they don't already know. I mean, this happened seven years ago. I discussed it with some of my staff today and they did not know the details of the case. But it's a major incident, a major turning point in Newfoundland and Labrador where we can say this is wrong and we, we know things need to change and we support Jane Doe. This is one seven-year journey, but is the bigger concern here that this has a dampening effect um, for, uh, God forbid, anyone who uh, encounters sexual violence in the future? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see it on our Law & Order episodes all the time, you know, But it's happening right here in our communities. This happened in the east end of St. John's. You know, this was a basement apartment of a young woman who was in town trying to make her way and had gone out for a good night and then just had the unimaginable happen to her. It, um, it's everywhere. And if someone who can be so horribly hurt has to go through all of this for justice the next time it happens. And it does happen. We all know it. You know, we have to show our support so that things start to change. Jen Dion, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Thank you, Linda. Alrighty. Bye-bye. And um, VOCM's Brian Callahan tells me that this Thursday is the decision on whether the court will actually hear the appeal, not a ruling on the appeal itself. We're going to take a very short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we are back. We're going now to Eugene Nippert. Hello, Eugene. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good, wonderful show, Linda. And first of all, congratulations on a milestone of all these years with VOCM. Thank you. How many years, Linda? Uh, 35. Thanks for pointing it out, Eugene. (laughs) 35 years. Yes, I know I've heard your voice many years ago. For many years. Yeah, well, congratulations. And it's always good to hear you, Linda. Uh, 
so the reason why I'm calling this morning, nothing new for me. Uh, since uh, 2018, uh, we formed a group, uh, the Citizens uh, the concerned citizens have a group on the air ambulance in the province, and it all started from on Fogo Island. Was trying to get the air ambulances on Fogo Island, and then at least, we, if not, we have them in Gander when the emergency from Fogo Island would arrive in Gander by ferry, and and Harbour Britain, and the list goes on. All these places. Now, uh, I would give up on this issue, Linda, but I, I don't see how I can because the public is saying, keep fighting, Eugene. It's making sense. The councils, whether it's the town council of Gander, Lewisburg, Fogwell, Arbor Britain, or wherever, they've been supporting us saying, listen, we should have air ambulances based in central Newfoundland, closer to the patient. And if I give up, then Eastern Health and the bureaucracy in the system would win over the people that's there waiting for an air ambulance plus crisscrossing the province, costing the taxpayers millions of unnecessary dollars when they should be closer to the patient. And I can go into examples of patients that have suffered and, and we have actually in Labrador have people that have died waiting for an air ambulance and it's unnecessary and it, it's not good enough. So do I give up? Do the concerned citizens give up? No, I don't think we should. Uh, the I, I am... You know, like the the the, the past minister uh, of health is on side with this, agree 100 percent ever since 2018. The premier is on side with this, and now, from what I gather, Minister Osborne is on side with this. You know, we should have the the air ambulance close to the patient, but still, it's not happening. So, 95 uh, percent of our air ambulances now, Linda, is is originating from St. John's traveling to as far as Wabush. And why should that be happening? You know, uh, they, they say they come up with scenarios like, scenarios like uh, well, what about the medical personnel? Uh, our medical personnel is on the Avalon. Well, we can have these medical personnel in Gander uh, or anywhere else, not only in St. John's, because actually one of the private operators, Linda, went on and tested the water, see if there was any interest in those, this medical personnel that we need for your ambulance, and they had over 50 applicants. And I'm sure today, like the travel nurses are having a demonstration today uh, at the Confederation building, uh, where it's a big concern. If you put that same scenario out today for the medical personnel for ARAMS, you'd, you'd be flooded with applicants. So that's only an excuse. It's controlled on the Avalon Central, uh, Eastern Elk, I'm sorry, it's Eastern Elk, and the bureaucracy in the system, because if the Premier agrees with it, and if the Minister agrees with it, and, and so why isn't it happening? You know, so it's ridiculous. Uh, patients are suffering, and it's unnecessary. And like I said, again, repeat myself, it's costing the taxpayers because these retainers in the system are paid by the kilometers also, and it's costing the taxpayers uh, millions of unnecessary dollars, and the patient is there waiting for the ambulance. And I, like I said, I just had a, an example of a friend of mine that, that, that from, from Fogo Island that was in Gander, and they had to wait for an ambulance to come from St. John's when we got two in the system right now that's from Gander, but they won't base them in Gander. They got to base them on the Avalon, where 75% of the population lives that don't need it. It doesn't make sense to anyone. Why is it happening? It got to change, Linda. Eugene, I'm, I'm glad you uh, are continuing to bang the drum on this. Uh, I'd like to hear what others have to say. Thank you very much.
Yes, and I would too, Linda. Hopefully people can speak up because, you know, if we need more voices like myself and Dave Callahan or whoever that's fighting this issue and, and, and the, the prime, sorry, the mayor of Gander or whoever. We, we need more voices. This got to get done. We can't let this happen. The RFP is going to be closed and start now the 1st of April. They're going to finalize things the 1st of April. So we got to get this done before the 1st of April. We got to accomplish what we've been fighting for since 2018. Thank you, Linda. Always appreciate your time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good day, Linda. Bye-bye. Bye. We're going to go now to Charlie around the air. Hi, Charlie. Oh, good day, Linda. Uh, Grocery prices. Can we talk that for a while? Sure. Uh, I was watching a fifth estate on this uh, last week, I think. Uh, I've often wondered how it goes from the supplier getting a very low price and the consumer in the supermarket paying uh, through the sky, right? And uh, they they explained this very well, I thought. Uh, basically, the suppliers, farmers and so on, are at the mercy of the, uh, of the corporations getting the product on the shelves and so on and all the stuff they've got to do to they're responsible for if it doesn't sell and on and on. So in the end product, who's making the money would be the Galen Weston types. By the way, his name came came up again. I'll mention him uh, in a little while. And uh, I would say this from from uh, the example in Britain, where the the supermarket chains, uh, the large corporations, have to sign a code of conduct uh, regarding their their dealings with suppliers and that. And uh, they they appointed an enforcer in Britain to to make sure that they went they obeyed this code of conduct, and prices leveled off. Uh, I would say here in Canada, uh, they talked about a code of conduct that would be voluntary, and Galen Weston ended up not signing that. He, his argument was it, it it'll be harder on the consumers, which 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 was kind of funny. But anyway, uh, I would I would suggest that uh, if 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 the the conservatives and liberals are interested in getting in uh, next election. Why don't they bring in that code of conduct and do as Britain did and enforce it? And uh, perhaps we can get a handle on this rather than leaving it to 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 uh, these people to to do this voluntarily. Um, I don't know if you want to comment, but uh, to me, uh, it seems like our governments here won't take the necessary steps. They'll talk about it. They'll they'll uh, do press conferences and so on. But why not take action like they took in Britain? Uh, you want to say anything on that? No, that's a, a, an interesting point, and I'd like to hear what others have to say. Now, you wanted to talk about uh, wind energy as well. Yes. Uh, about a year or so ago, when a lot of us were on radio uh, uh, concerning the, the, the project, the feasibility of it, especially financially, couldn't see how it could make money. I had read several articles, uh, uh, some from the Halifax Examiner on that, because they were looking at the thing up there. Uh, I was talking to a guy yesterday who was really up on this. I won't mention his name on the air. And he referred me to a couple of articles, and I'd like to mention one that, that backs up what we were talking about a year or two ago. The uh, cost of green hydrogen is three to six times as expensive 
as the grey hydrogen, which is used about 98% all, all over the world. And what a lot of us are wondering, how in the heck, and, and, and then I, excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, Lynn, they're not giving us any information on uh, how much uh, the, the Germans are willing to pay for this. Uh, to, to produce that, not only if it was used locally, which would, would make more sense, but if it, it's being shipped across the, the, the Atlantic. So it, do we expect the German consumer is going to pay double or triple what they're paying for energy now? Uh, the guy in this article calls it magical thinking, if we think we can send that abroad and, and make it pay. And his argument is, and, and of others that I read, the only way this, this can uh, be profitable is enormous subsidies from the, from the taxpayer, from the federal government. And no doubt they'll try to involve the provincial government as well at, at some point. So there's a lot of questions regarding this. Why don't, why don't they uh, tell us how much it is uh, it's going to take to produce this product? what the end price would be, what they expect to get for it, you'll notice they're not talking about that at all. Well, I suppose that's uh, that's part of the, you know, uh, uh, because these are all private companies that are, are putting this together. So, I mean, that's, uh, and ostensibly, they're not using any government funds until now. They are getting access to crown land, and that footprint is going to be significant. Just wait till these things start going up on the landscape. Well, actually, they are getting money. They are getting uh, uh, big subsidies from the federal government who's promoting this with them. Not the province, but the feds are, right? But but I agree with you on that. And, and the other question is uh, they have to uh, link in to the grid, and you've got five uh, companies there. Where is that energy coming from uh, when, the, when they need to go to the grid? This is not being answered either. So there's so many questions up in the air. This guy, by the way, if anybody's interested in this article, the reality of clean hydrogen, um, and the guy's name is Glasser. I'm I'm trying to find it there now, but anyway, I can't see it. Anyway, uh, you can can Google that to find out something some things about this. So it seems to me we're going to have all this, this uh, land torn up and, uh, and we're buying a pig and a poke. Uh, they're not answering questions. Uh, these people, uh, these committees on the West Coast who are trying to get answers can't get them, and it seems like nobody else can. So uh, how they can make a profit, it's beyond me. I, I, I don't know why they wouldn't be producing this stuff over in uh, Sweden and Norway, which is very close to Germany, if it's such a feasible type project, right? Uh, Charlie, interesting questions. Um, uh, um, I'm glad you raised them, and uh, many others are, are seeking out the same kinds of uh, answers. Uh, thanks for your call this morning. Okay, Linda. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're up to news time now with Alison King. This is VOCM Open Line. Heading into the last hour of the show, now is your opportunity to give us a call. You're listening to a rebroadcast of VOCM Open Line. Have your say by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And listen live weekday mornings at 9 a.m.
And we're back, and we just received a really interesting email. Earlier in the show, we were talking about some of the systemic issues that may restrict recruitment and retention of nurses in the public system, uh, leaving government more reliant, of course, on high-cost travel nurses. And we've seen what's come out of all of this. Well, uh, we received a email from someone who uh, wished not to be named, but says, I'm a registered nurse of 18 years with specialty education. I first started out with Eastern Health and moved to central after five years and when I uh, and during that move this person lost their seniority she says I worked for central health for 11 years then moved back to St. John's uh, because she had to leave her job in central again lost her seniority Uh, she says they do have a new system now where your seniority is supposed to be portable but unfortunately she didn't get that opportunity so here she is 18 years experience working in newfoundland and applying for jobs with eastern health and not getting a call she says it upsets me to know that they are paying money for travel nurses when there are Newfoundland nurses applying for jobs and not getting a call. She says it also upsets me that a nurse with 18 years experience can't get a job because of seniority rules. She says she's been working in private practice now because she can't get a job with Eastern Health, yet they are crying out for nurses. Wow. Well, that's interesting indeed. We are going to go now to... The Minister of Education, Crystalline Howell, who I understand is pulled over on the side of the road in her district of St. Barb, Lansom Meadows. Hello, Crystalline. Hi, how are you? Good. How are the roads today? Oh, pretty good. I'm actually in central Newfoundland today, but oh. I am literally on the side of the road. <laughs> Very good. We'll be careful out there. Well, um, we're, uh, we're taken to the public libraries today. We're doing a tour of the public libraries in central Newfoundland and just having a chat with the the library resource folks and some of the families that will be at the centers that we make our way to and just thinking about all the great things that are happening in these resources in our communities. Well, indeed, such an important resource, too. And uh, a lot of them have uh, really been struggling to to keep up with uh, demand and cost and COVID and all the rest of it. So what kind of stories are you hearing? Oh, well, hearing that, you know, that there, since COVID, there's been uh, a lot of specific challenges that some of our libraries have been facing, and they've been able to pivot. They did a great job during uh, a lot of the pandemic times and, and made their resources available online. They've been doing great work with shipping uh, books to folks who wanted to order them online. I didn't even know that was a thing until recently, uh, but they've been able to uh, to change gears and make sure that the resources are still getting into the hands of the people in Newfoundland and Labrador. So we're super appreciative of, of the hard work that they've put in. And we were pleased to be able to support some of that work with an announcement this week of an additional $600,000 in funding to, uh, to continue the great work that they've been able to do. Does it go far enough, though? Well, you know, every little bit helps, I guess. Yeah, we recognize that there are still challenges and the cost of everything is ballooning right now. So they're not immune to that either. But uh, this was something that we felt we could do immediately. Money we could get out the door very quickly, get into the hands of the library's board who have been incredible stewards of the money that uh, they've been given over the little last little while. Their uh, budget did, I think, a $13 million contribution from the provincial government every year. And they use that to the best of their abilities and they allocate it where the resources are needed and um, we're very confident that they'll take this money and be able to do the same with that. 
You mentioned uh, yesterday during your media availability that, you know, it's important to you to be on the ground and see, you know, these these um, uh, facilities firsthand and talk to the people who are involved and learn what they do and all of that sort of thing. Do you, will that uh, go towards future, um, you know, allocations or, or discussions? Certainly. You know, all of the information that we gather in, in these trips and, and visits and um, site stops always informs our decision-making process. When we see something that's working really well, we know it's something that we want to continue to invest in. If there's something that's not so hot, not working out so great, then maybe that's something that needs revamping or a policy change or, or some, uh, you know, different direction for that specific issue. So all of those things are, are part of the conversations that we're having. We're hearing about some of the really great work that's happening here, hearing about some of the, the challenges that they're facing, and uh, that'll all be part of the conversation moving forward. And I know there's an awful lot of um, issues out there right now demanding a great deal of attention, healthcare, housing, uh, poverty, um, social determinants of health, uh, mental health and addictions. These are all very important things. But on the very fundamental level, literacy is so important to um, it, it's just one of those base fundamental um, issues that uh, helps build everything here in this province. So, I mean, is it hard uh, for libraries to get that kind of attention, you know, given what, you know, the many important issues that are happening today? Yeah, you know what? You, you make an excellent point. It's uh, There are many challenges and, and a lot of things that are vying for attention and for funding. But um, to your point, our, our literacy is one of the greatest things that we can do to focus on to enhance um, the viability of, of the province and uh, our focus lately has been a lot on our early learning we've got some additional funding in in this batch for our early learning literacy and continuing to promote the early learning sector and, and how we do that but I think then that is an excellent segue into our k-12 system and how we support our students is largely how we build our future here in Newfoundland and Labrador so uh, it's been a busy week in the Department of Education last week we had the opportunity to sit with our teachers in our think tank and uh, hear some of the challenges and, and things that they're facing in their classrooms and um, you know they've they've done a great job too of, of pivoting during the last couple of years over the the pandemic and you know we understand that there are new challenges and new needs in the classrooms and, and having the opportunity to sit with them and hear their stories hear their perspectives listen to the daily challenges that they face and you know some of the intrinsic challenges that they face in doing their job uh, was certainly a meaningful activity for us and um, we were able to offer some short-term solutions and some support after those conversations but uh, a huge piece of the puzzle as we we build a, a stable future here in Newfoundland and Labrador. Crystal and Howell I do appreciate your time this morning safe travels. Thank you so much. I just want to encourage anybody who's out there listening to check out your local public library, incredible resources. And uh, if there's anything that you need, I'm sure they're more than, than willing to help uh, all families find the resources that are appropriate. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. All righty. Bye-bye. Uh, that's uh, Crystalline Howell, the Education Minister. We're going to go now to uh, one of the candidates in the by-election in Ward 4 in the City of St. John's, Mr. Tom Davis. Hello. Good morning, Linda. Hello. 
I just want to start off thanking you for stepping in. I can't imagine how it happens in the back rooms when someone's sick or someone can't hope when Patty is out of commission. So I, I know you oftentimes get the call. I know Tim in Ottawa gets the call. So thank you so much because I, I know it's got to be a real challenge and there's a lot of people to remiss if for some reason there was no one there to answer the call. Appreciate that. Tom, what's on your mind? Well, I want to... Uh, send out our thoughts and prayers for Debbie Hanlon. I know she's going through a tough time. And uh, last time I saw her was Tibbs Eve, and she was full of vim and vigor. So I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing her in that same state soon. What a life force. I mean, she really does exude that energy, doesn't she? Yeah, she's a... She's quite a quite a unique entity, and uh, again, like I say, I, I just hope she feels all the support from everybody, and uh, that uh, our healthcare system can can get her back on the mend. Absolutely. So I want to remind uh, residents of Ward Four that um, you should be receiving your your mail-in ballots, and um, you have to have them in the mail by March the seventh or you can drop them off in front of City Hall, and there's a box there, or you can actually vote in person on March the 12th. If you're not sure whether you're uh, registered to vote, um, you can go to City St. John's and, and look up the voter registration portal, and, and if you're not registered, it'll, it'll tell you, and you can go through the process there. Very good. I want to thank the other candidates. It's, it's been a great um, campaign so far and respectful and some incredible uh, incredible uh, complexity brought out and a lot of uh, well thought through uh, presentations made and I hope that uh, the councillors and the people who run the city are listening because the residents are speaking and obviously they're going to get to speak on March 12th as well. Important issues raised too. Yeah, yeah, and a lot of really good perspectives. So again, it's it's an incredible process to go through and and for people listening, I know there's negatives. Brian Moore was talking about it earlier, but, uh, you know, we need courageous leadership now and and we need out-of-the-box thinking all around the province, but in particular in Ward 4. I want to I hit on a couple of key issues. And we'll me. have to uh, make it quick because I'm up to a break and we've got a lot of people waiting. Okay, sorry. So um, the city of St. John's is still spending taxpayer money to fight the release of the information as it relates to St. John's Sports and Entertainment uh, payments they made to employees, but as well made to other parties, most likely including uh, the owners of the Growlers. It, you know, that should be public information, and, and that needs to be put out there. We also have GoBus, which is a mainline company, but the city has bought the buses. GoBus doesn't maintain their own buses. They send it out to be maintained, and they're headquartered in Mount Pearl, and I think that's another area we need to investigate. But again, for anybody who's interested, uh, please, uh, you can reach out uh, to me anytime through, uh, through TomDavisNL.com. Um, anyway, have a great day, Linda, and good luck with the rest of your show. All right. Thank you, Tom, and uh, all the best to you and the, uh, and the candidates in the war for, Ward 4 by-election. Thank you. Okay. Take care, everyone. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, we hope to hear from you. And we are back, and we're going to go now to Alistair Han. Hello, Alistair. Good morning, Linda. Good morning. Sorry for the wait. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sorry for bugging you two mornings in, in a row. 
Uh, Linda, what I called about this morning was I've heard a lot of talk about management of the redfish in the Gulf and so on, and, and there's been quite a debate on how they're going to share it up, who's going to get it, and so on. And I've got a feeling that the deal is going to be done. It's probably been done once under the table, and i got a feeling it's going to happen again. But anyway, Linda, as far as the management, what decimated the the Gulf for redfish, that's the previous stock when it was healthy, was the introduction of midwater trawl. Now, uh, midwater trawl came on. Before that, you could only fish redfish during the daylight hours because redfish has got a habit of coming, of leaving the bottom and coming up in the water nighttime. So therefore, the bottom, the, the regular old bottom trawler couldn't catch the fish during the nighttime. And we had a captain in Virgil who lobbied and lobbied hard that if this didn't stop, that the redfish would be decimated. But anyway, it continued, and the chief biologist, or I think he was the chief at that time, was a guy by the name of Sandyman. And he came to Virgil and seen this skipper about his lobbying and so on. In fact, I'm not sure that he didn't make a trip in the Gulf with him. But anyway, the practice continued, and Sandyman was contending and promoting at that time that the amount of redfish in the Gulf could not be caught, that the mortality rate was greater than the catch rate. So, you know, Linda, if they carry on with that kind of science and with that kind of thought, well, the redfish won't be back very long after it opens. Now, another thing I would like to say is they're trying to figure out which way they should divvy it up. Well, I would like to say this. Why don't they divvy up the redfish the same way they did the alibot on Burjo Bank? There's been an influx of alibot on Burjo Bank in the past few years. Could the fishermen from Burjo, Ramya, go and fish that alibot? No, because they didn't have any historical attachment. Well, who had the historical attachment? Fishermen from Sambro, Nova Scotia. And they've took tons and tons of alibot off Burjo Bank in the last couple of winters, Linda. And, you know, Burjo was a big town, and now it's a dying town. And it don't make you feel good to see those kind of things happen. So what happened well, to the principle of adjacency? Of historical attachment. They find that it will lead them right back to Burjo, Ramya, and Galtas. It won't lead them to Prince Edward Island. It won't lead them to New Brunswick. Now, I'm making those accusations, Linda, and anybody is free to see if those accusations are right. Um, I asked, what, what happened to the principle of adjacency? Well, I don't know if there ever was a principle of that. Maybe on paper. But I'm telling you, you can follow what I'm saying this morning. And out on Virgil Bank, and I've, I would even go so far as to predict, if you check right now, you will see boats from Nova Scotia fishing uh, 
I'm 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 going to say about 20 mile off from Burjo. They're close enough that if they have bad weather, they would seek shelter in Ramya. But, of course, the fishermen from Burjo can only catch, I don't know what it is, but I know they, they catch it in a day or so, the amount of alibut that they're allowed to catch. When they go to their union and and try to get a bigger quota, oh, you don't have any historical attachment. No, they don't have any historical attachment. But they're practically sitting on top of the alibut, but they can't have it. Now, I compare that to the the the, the, the Gulf Fleet, which really don't have that much historical attachment, I guarantee you. And certainly they want to catch it, and no one can blame them for that. But what I'm saying is, if you're going to use your principles for one fish, use it for the other one. And you will find if they check that historical attachment of Burjo, Ramya, and Galdas to the Gulf of St. Lawrence Ridfish, it'll lead them right by the nose back to Burjo, Ramya, and Galdas again. Alistair, I appreciate your call this morning. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to the MHA for Grand Falls, Windsor, Buckins. Mr. Chris Tibbs, hello. Good morning, Linda. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, Great. Thank you very much for taking my call today. I wanted to talk about our nurses that have been disrespected in this province for quite some time now. Um, uh, At the essence, Linda, the problem that we have in our healthcare system is that we are listening to the wrong people. And I've been saying this since day one. This is the way I felt. Uh, the premier of the province has said uh, that we, we, you know, we all need to. Uh, we won't be able to solve the problems in healthcare using the thinking that created them in the first place. Uh, but I don't think that goes far enough, Linda. Uh, I really believe that we will not solve the problems with the thinking organizations and institutions that got us in this mess that we find ourselves in today, where our you know, healthcare workers have felt so disrespected over the past couple of years. Um, you know, so within the system, Linda, you know, who should we be listening to? And and I think that's the problem. I think that's that's where we need to find our solutions. Uh, the frontline workers who, who go to work every single day and deliver clinical care uh, in our collapsing system, the workers that grind out shift after shift, uh, do the best for their patients, uh, they are the ones that we should be listening to, Linda. They are the ones that put in the blood, sweat, and tears every single day, and those are the only ones that should have the moral high ground to comment on any of this, because those are the ones that put it on the line every day, Linda. Nobody knows what our healthcare workers go through and what they need other than them. Those are the best people to be talking to. And until we do that, Linda, we're not going to turn the ship around. And, of course, the issues that were raised in that uh, Globe and Mail article, which uh, relied heavily, of course, on uh, ATIP information received, um, a lot of those issues are the ones that the nurses' union have been talking about for ages now. For ages, Linda. You know, and, and, and you know, if we are to be honest, uh, they've been telling the powers that be, like you just said, uh, about the problems we are uh, that we have right now in healthcare, and what need to be done about them for years. Uh, it's not just the the, the authority, the, the the right people in government that should be listening. Um, you know, Newfoundlanders and Labradorians across this island, we need our healthcare workers. We need them to be happy. We need them to be safe, and we need to ensure they're going to stay here. Um, you know, our elected officials need to get on the ground and see what's happening. I invited Tom Osborne out here 
about a year ago. And to his credit, he did come out. Uh, but what has happened since? I brought him to our emergency room. I wanted him to be on the ground with those people that matter and to talk to them. And nothing has changed. And if I can remind people, Linda, of, um, you know, we have so many closures and outlying communities and stuff like that that get sent here to Grand Falls, Windsor. This is the contingency plan. And on, Dece- on December 14, 2022, I wrote uh, Minister Osborne and the government a letter um, begging for help here, requesting that we get the help we need. If something happens to the Grand Falls Windsor Hospital here and their, and their clinical teams, uh, there is no contingency plan. This is it. This is the Alamo. This is the backstop for so many communities throughout central Newfoundland and Labrador. And if this fails, if this collapses, Linda, can you imagine how much trouble we're going to be in? And I've been telling this to, to, to the government for many, many years now. And I'll just, again, remind everybody that we have so many good people working, men and women, in healthcare that hold titles such as doctors and nurses. But these are our mothers and fathers, our brothers and sisters, our friends, our neighbors, Linda. These are the people we need to be taken care of. And until we do that, until we talk to them personally, we will not turn the ship around. And I, I just fear for the future of Central Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, we have some great people that are holding the ground right now. They are holding on. Uh, they are absolutely at their wits' end. I talk to them on a daily basis. Um, and until this government uh, puts down the arrogance and, and says, you know what, you don't, this government does not have all the answers. Where are the answers? The answers are in those nooks and crannies of those good people that are taking care of the patients on the ground today. Chris Tibbs, thanks for your call this morning. I appreciate everything, Linda, and keep up the great work. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And we're up to news time now with uh, Brian Medora. You're listening to VOCM Open Line. Into the last half half hour of the program, now is your opportunity to give us a call. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. And we're back. We're going now to Peter Leonard. Hello, Peter. Hello, Linda. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. That's good. Uh, Linda, I'd just like to pick up there where Alistair was too from uh, from Bergio there and the Halibut situation. You know, the same thing was uh, done in uh, 3PS and uh, like there in uh, 3PN, but on uh, St. Pierre Bank and in the gullies and uh, people were out there from uh, Fortune, Grand Bank, Bjorn, those places. And, and other places, but that's three major ones. And uh, they were basically making a living catching halibut. And we had a boy catch for. <coughs> excuse me, apologize. Uh, and, uh, you know, like uh, all that was taken. You know, we even got Nova Scotians over here doing the surveys, you know, like uh, sitting just for uh, see what the stock is like, healthy. But, you know, uh, anyway, i just like to add to that. I sound like the man knew what he was talking about, but it's 100% true. And i just like to say I turned on CBC Radio yesterday evening, and I heard uh, Greg Pretty's voice there, and uh, he was saying something about redfish, and he said something about looking for a formula for a crab pricing formula and uh, something else. Oh, yeah, EI. So I, I just going to turn it off because I, I thought it was an old news clip from 2023. Because, uh, but he's still singing the same song, and uh, I don't think he get much to, to show for it. And uh, the amount of redfish that Newfoundland is going to get now is going to be limited because, like, Union is uh, always finds out. The fishermen know what's going on before the Union finds out, and. Uh, and that's unfortunate. 
And, you know, like, after Earl McCurdy left as president, well, you know, the Keith Sullivan command stream, they're now in, uh, you know, like, uh, things started sliding in the FFAW, in my opinion, and a good many others. But anyway, we'll stick to mine. But, uh, uh, you know, and now FFAW is at rock bottom. And you've heard that term, and everybody else used that term loosely over the years. And you know what happens when you get to rock bottom. Either you change, or either that the outcome is just fatal. So, you know, like, uh, I, I just believe that, uh, you know, like the FFAW is at rock bottom. I don't think... Uh, so what needs to happen then? What you happen? just said, uh, you know, you just said what happens when, when uh, things hit rock bottom. But uh, you know, what does the FFAW need to do? Well, I think the uh, inshore council and the uh, executives needs to remove the paid executives from their positions because uh, it, it's going nowhere. And like the pricing formula, you know. We've heard that so long and so often, and it hasn't gone anywhere, really. But I'll I'll just say this to you. I'll just say this to the fishermen in Newfoundland and Labrador. Who would you rather go into negotiations with on pricing in 2024? Would you rather go in if Derek Butler was leading it, or would you rather go in if Jeff Floater was leading it? Or would you rather go in if Greg Pretty was leading? And I think I know the answer to that. But, uh, you know, like there's no change and uh, and no pain, no gain. And fish harvesters in Newfoundland and Labrador, Linda, are after having enough of pain. Uh, Thank you for that. You enjoy the rest of your show. All right, Peter. Thank you. Bye-bye. We're going to go now to the uh, Minister of Immigration, Population, Growth and Skills. He also happens to be the MHA for Corner Brook District, uh, Jerry Byrne. Hello. Oh, thanks so, so much for having me on, Linda. No trouble. So we've been talking a lot about redfish. Yeah, and so we should. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is an issue that's an absolute preoccupation priority of the provincial government in Newfoundland and Labrador because I'll put it to you this way, Linda. If I were to go into the west coast, northern peninsula, southwest coast area of Newfoundland and Labrador and and southern Labrador and say to people, I am here to announce a particular initiative which will create 600 plus jobs, generate $200 million a year for the local economy and will be sustainable for decades to come. I don't think that would be poorly received at all. Well, that's what the redfish file, the redfish decision, the redfish resource means to the west coast of Newfoundland, to the northern peninsula, to the southwest coast, and to southern Labrador. It is our future. And, you know, I can't put it any plainer and simpler than that. You know, it's tough enough. When you lose one, um, you lose it. If you... If you don't have the basis to win an argument and you lose the argument, you take it on the chin and you look for another day. 
But when you win one, but you still lose it, it's really tough to take. And that's what redfish means to me, is that this is a situation where we are totally, totally in the competitive advantaged position. We have the boats, we have the people, we have the plants, we have conservation policy and principles on our side, we have historic access on our side, we have indigenous reconciliation principles on our side. We should be winning this one. This is the one we win, but yet once again, Ottawa tells us, uh, you can't win one, you're going to lose it. So that's, you just got to have to take it. I do not accept that, Linda. I do not accept that. So yesterday we heard from Eddie Joyce who said, you know, where's the premier on this? Because he... Front and center. I'm going to stop you. Okay. I'm going to stop you, you know, not you, but I'm going to stop anyone who wants to make this about a political, a domestic dispute. Because this is what trips us up every time. Someone will try to take a united position of Newfoundland and Labrador. As you heard from Jason Spiegel, as you heard from the, the, the harvesters who've come on open line, as you've heard from everybody, we have a united position on this one, and that is our strength. Someone will always want to come along and try to create a domestic issue, divide us domestically within the province, divide that coalition, divide that initiative, so that uh, because our success becomes what they perceive to be their failure, that's not going to happen in this case. The premier is all over this. There were three provincial cabinet ministers that attended a demonstration, a information session in Cornerbrook a few weeks ago, I was one of them. The Minister of Fisheries and Aquaculture was one of them. Uh, the Minister for the Northern Peninsula, Krista Howell, was one of them. There was one person who was not there, the member for Humber Bay of Islands. So, listen, join the team. Get with this. Be united. Let's win this and put forward a, a common front to Ottawa as the FFAW, as harvesters, as those in the processing industry are prepared to do. We can do this if we stay united. Don't divide. The Premier is 100% on, this, on, on, on the importance of this issue and fighting for Newfoundland and Labrador on this issue. Don't try to divide. So what kind of representation is being made then? I mean, what, what can we expect? Well, we are front and center dealing with our federal cabinet ministers. So we, you know, we, we, we said, we said out loud, all of us said, gee, Newfoundland and Labrador, first time in a very, very long time, two federal cabinet ministers from this province appointed to uh, the, the Trudeau administration's cabinet. They're our linchpin to this. The MPs are our linchpin to all of this. Dealing directly with the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans is a linchpin on all of this. Getting to the word out to uh, not-for-profit, uh, to environmental governmental organizations is a linchpin to all of this. Why? Because we're supposed to have learned something, all of us collectively, we're supposed to have learned something from the collapse of the groundfish resource, the largest, most uh, historic, most significant protein source on the planet, some will argue. We lost it when Northern Cod closed and the groundfish resource closed. That was 30 years ago. What have we learned? Have we learned anything? Are we prepared to make it any better? Well, the answer is very telling. And this is why redfish is so important. In, a, in addition to the economic impact of redfish, 
why this is so important is because it demonstrates to us that Ottawa, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, is morally and intellectually bankrupt. They are prescribing a brand new resort, you know, a, a allocation of a resource uh, when boats and people and plants already exist to be able to prosecute this fishery and to do so in a conservation-minded, a uh, conservation-first priority. What are they suggesting? What are they t- saying? What are they actually decided? No, 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 no. Let's not use the existing capacity. Let's create more capacity, and let's see, apply taxpayers' money to generate more capacity in places as far away from the resources as you could possibly imagine, as far away as the Bay of Fundy off of it, on, the, on the southern slopes of Nova Scotia. Uh, let's actually build more capacity, and with that comes what we learned and should have understood, the irresistible, insatiable appetite that comes when you overcapitalize a fishery. You create an insatiable appetite for more and more and more fish. That's what happened when offshore draggers entered the northern cod fishery. It just became insatiable. You had to feed the economics of that fleet, not the needs of the resource. That's where this is so, so serious. And watch what happens to the resource. hundred percent. When there are people in the Bay of Islands, fishers, indigenous fishers, who have been, you know, depending on this resource, the ground fish resources from the what I call the pond of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Uh, Rengenge called it the river. I call it the pond of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Uh, where now factory freezer trawlers will be allowed to re-enter when 64 11-foot boats, inshore boats, uh, will be tied up. Some of them will be looking for, through no fault of their own, through economic necessity, they'll be looking for government to, uh, to, to provide them some sort of dignified way out of the fishery. While, at the same time, while taxpayers will be asked to grant fishers uh, a dignified exit to the fishery. Offshore companies will be plying offshore factory freezer trawlers in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. It just, I, I, I pause and I just got to take a deep breath and say, what the heck is going on? Jerry Byrne, I appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. I love. Bye-bye. Uh, we're going to take a short break. When we come back, uh, Fisheries Minister Elvis Lovelace is in the lineup. We'll speak with him and hopefully you. And we are back. We're going now to the Minister of Fisheries, uh, Elvis Lovelace. Hello, Elvis. Hello, Linda. How are you? And listen, first of all, let me congratulate you on your many years of experience. So I'm not going to, I heard you earlier, all oh, you told how long I've been here, but many years of experience, and we thank you for that. And uh, you've done a uh, phenomenal job in those many years. Been talking to you a long time, that's for sure. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And Linda, I, I know you, you, you know, are getting near the end of your program. And let me, I uh, was just listening to, to Jerry and his, uh, certainly his, his passion uh, from his history in politics. And not only that, just as, as MHA, uh, you know, his area is affected by this quite uh, uh, strong, I guess, if that's the right word. And, and Jerry and his conviction in terms of uh, MHA always first. 
um, in representing his area and listening to his harvesters uh, on the uh, west coast of the island and, and certainly the Great Northern Peninsula and Minister Howell as well as he had alluded to was at the rally and uh, you know a, a united voice and, and I think that's important. I think that was a common word that was used in his discussion with you just a few minutes ago about the united position. So Linda, if I can just add to I guess some of this what what has transpired in the past and where our disappointment is and the fact that uh, yes we have been loud and clear to the federal government the premier has and uh, Jerry Byrne has myself and here, if I can give just a little bit brief comments on what transpired. When the minister was appointed to the position uh, as federal fisheries minister, uh, recognizing that, you know, it, it's a big challenge coming from Quebec as well. Um, so, you know, I wrote to her right away and, and stressing in, in terms of redfish. And this is not just about redfish. Let me make it clear. This is this is about every species uh, that provides economic uh, uh, development, uh, employment for Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. So, let me make that clear that uh, you know we we have a strong voice not just on redfish but on every every species and I mean when she was appointed to the department uh, certainly made it known that you know the redfish quota allocations need to and should consider um, and as has been said before Newfoundland and Labrador's historical attachment to the fishery the long uh, principle of adjacency and certainly reconciliations with indigenous peoples so we wrote I wrote to the minister and was waiting for a, a meeting with her face to face and and, uh, and I did get that before Christmas. Um, met with her what I perceived as a very good meeting where we talked about sustainability of rural communities and I was very impressed by those words because it it was relative to how um, uh, here in the province and, and myself as a uh, MHA that represents rural districts but I reminded the minister I said in order for this to happen you talk about sustainability for rural communities but in order for that to happen I repeated it three times in the meeting that in order to do that we have to have Newfoundland and Labrador has to have our fair share and that not that's not just redfish it's crab halibut whatever the case may be that's how we're going to support and sustain these rural communities she she agreed absolutely 100 percent then just not very long I know I think it was a day or two after the fact this decision was made when it seems like, wow, nothing that was in the meeting that was said was listened to based on that decision. So that was uh, that smacked us in the face of, uh, well, obviously they didn't listen to our message, and that was very unfortunate. So anyways, you don't drop the ball then. So I attended a rally, as was mentioned, with FFAW in, in Cornerbrook. Uh, Minister Byrne was there, Minister Howell. Uh, uh, the message was loud and clear. And, and Linda, the thing about it is I spoke to some harvesters, and, and when harvesters tell you that, uh, you know, the, this redfish fishery was uh, hoping to be a, uh, a lifeblood for them, um, uh, especially those that were face a reduction in the, in the shrimp quota, was a lifeblood for them. But this was just a, an insult as they put it, um, and, and, and to hear harvesters say that I'm, I, my boat is tied up by the wharf and I'm just waiting for the bank to come and get it. Now that gets real. That's real examples of what this decision is doing to these harvesters on on the, the west coast, in particular in the Great Northern Peninsula part of this, this island. So 
Then I, I wrote the minister again and uh, reiterating the, the importance of reconsidering um, um, more allocation for Newfoundland and Labrador. And a few days later, uh, later sorry, I, I met with her again and with my Atlantic ministers, with Atlantic ministers of fisheries, with a united voice. And, 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 my, and my, I would say all of us were united in our, uh, our uh, disappointment in her decision. So that that meeting took place, and since that time, uh, Linda, I'm writing the minister again. Um, uh, the premier and I met with harvesters only last week on the west coast, discussed many issues, including redfish. I met with FFAW again with the with Greg Pretty and some union members to discuss very important issues other than redfish as well, but redfish was certainly included, and and I, I believe there's a united voice moving forward, and I will be attending the the Boston Seafood Show, and the, and the federal minister will be there, and I'll, we've requested to meet with her, and I'm going to meet with her to uh, to reiterate again the disappointment in this decision that was made, and that we need something different uh, um, to to be made, the decision to be made by the federal government. And Linda, if I can add, in terms of Okay, you, you asked what questions, what options are, where do we go, where do we move forward? So your listeners can understand that there's a Red Fish Advisory Committee that struck. Very important group. And very, we have a minute left. Okay, very important discussion uh, because th- there was a 25000 uh, uh, tack ato- associated with it. This We're asking for more. The minister hasn't ruled out that there won't be more. So um, I'm going to be meeting with the minister to press on that. I, I hate to be rushed, but I understand. I respect your time uh, there as well. And I've spoken with Minister Goody Hutchings as well, and she, she was not happy with it, and she's been pressing the minister for other options. What those options are, I don't know uh, at this point, but we'll be pushing for more. And uh, what's going to come from that Red Fish Advisory Committee is going to determine where it will go. Uh, 25000 minimum, and where it's going to go, we don't know at this point, but we'll be pushing for more so that we can get fairness for Newfoundland and Labrador. And let me let me say an end to all harvesters in this province that this is not just about redfish. This is about all species, and we'll be pushing Ottawa for our fair share for Newfoundland and Labrador. And, and Linda, I thank you for your time. Fisheries Minister Elvis Lovelace, uh, thank you. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. And he's had the last word on VOCM Open Line this morning. Thanks, for everyone, for your contributions. Uh, appreciate uh, hearing all the perspectives uh, uh, laid out there today. Um, we'll, uh, we, we'll be back tomorrow, whether it's me or Patty. I'm not sure yet. Uh, but uh, regardless, uh, Richard Duggan will be hosting News Talk this afternoon. And uh, stay tuned now for News at Noon with Brian Medore.